So Sam, would you rather rewatch Good Morning Vietnam or Apocalypse Now? Hold on. I don't think we're allowed to talk about Good Morning Vietnam anymore because as of today, Disney has trademarked Robin Williams. Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa Suela, and with me is the lawful good character on this podcast, Dr. Sam Morris. Hello. Andy is once again on leave today, so joining us in the third chair is host of Podwraiths, a Deep Space Nine podcast, Elise. We're so happy to have you here with us today, Elise. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. In this episode, Sam does not need the Quickie Mart, Elise got lost in a dream, they think, and I watch Saw Gerrera's origin story. So let's go ahead and jump right in. We're going to be talking about a lot of different properties today, I feel like. Let's go ahead and start with you, Sam, because you watched Problem with a Poo, and I know you're a huge Simpsons fan, so please enlighten us. Tell us about the Problem with a Poo. So the problem with Apu is a 2017 documentary created and directed by Hari Kondabolu. This was a documentary that had been gestating with him for a at least a couple of years. He talks about how he worked on uh, W. Kamau Bell's Totally Biased show and how he was kind of goaded on by Bell to make this documentary. So this documentary is a about 42 minutes. It's meant to be an hour length with commercials. I think it ran on True TV to begin with. And so it's based on what Kondabolu talks about as a problem with Apu, which is basically his existence. Problem is that Apu is reduced to a stereotype. And that stereotype negatively impacts not just Indian Americans, but basically any South Asian you know, if something is that broad of a stereotype, that's that pretty much tells you it's a problem in and of itself. And so this this documentary is kind of it runs along two tracks. The first track is doing the work of the documentary, which is documenting what Apu's cultural relevance has had as part of the cultural relevance, uh, the larger cultural relevance of The Simpsons. He has a lot of Indian. Uh, South Asian American Hollywood types, uh, actors like Cal Penn, uh, Aziz Ansari, uh, Asif Mandavi, who of course started on The Daily Show but is now on uh, Evil, uh, Hassan Minaj, who was also on The Daily Show. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, a lot of Daily Show stuff, which probably tells you something about nicheness and maybe how this is changing. But it talks about how this voice created by a white person has had this uh, deleterious effect on, you know, South Asian uh, American actors, comedians for, for quite a while. And then the second track is about Kondabalu's attempt to have Hank Azaria, the voice of Apu, on the documentary and Azaria's ducking and then ultimately refusing the request. So yeah, that's that's what the documentary is. Now, Elise, have are you first of all, are you a fan of The Simpsons? And second of all, have you seen this documentary or heard anything about this documentary? Um, there are a few Simpsons episodes I've seen numerous times, but I was not like a regular watcher of the show or and still not. And I have heard of this documentary, but I have not watched it. Um I am I am curious to watch it. That is something that I've thought about watching before, even though I wasn't a Simpsons fan. Well, I mean, I think to talk about The Simpsons, you have to, and this documentary does this as well, you have to talk about just like the absolute saturation of The Simpsons in pop culture, especially in the 90s. I mean, I I feel like it still is in a lot of ways, but like if you were any, if you were alive during the 90s, I feel like you knew a lot of The Simpsons, even if you didn't watch it. So That, I think, speaks to the importance of perhaps documentaries like this. But Sam, when we were talking about Becoming Bond, we talked about a documentary style mattering, 
What did you think of the style of this particular documentary? So Tessa has a problem with documentaries where they reenact things. Uh, we started watching McMillions. We watched the first couple of episodes of that. And it's it's just a bonkers story. But But the way that the documentary is told is very off-putting. And so this, again, it's only 42 minutes in length, so it's pretty short. Kondabolu does a lot of narration, um, you know, talking about his process. That's interspersed with some clips from The Simpsons, some clips from his stand-up comedy, other clips of pop culture, and then and interviews. You know, he talks with Aziz Ansari, who... Uh, if you remember, if you've seen the first season of Master of None, goes on, you know, that kind of that rant. There's an episode about uh, Fisher Stevens from Short Circuit, who basically brown faces and and plays uh, an, an Indian or an Indian American, but is actually a white dude. Cal Penn, you know, from Harold and Kumar. Uh, and Designated Survivor, and House, and all of these roles, talks about how much he hates The Simpsons because of Apu. Uh, Kondabolu actually likes The Simpsons despite Apu. And so there's just a lot of that. Um, There's some nice little animated sequences. Uh, There's one, you know, where uh, Kondabolu, at the end, he gets to punch big time stereotypical Indian characters from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, takes out Peter Sellers character from the party. Uh, you know, so it's 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 good. It's more what you think about when you think about a typical documentary. You know, you you talk to people, you talk about, you tell what the problem is, but you show it with clips. So it's very traditional in that way. It was pretty quickly paced. I really enjoyed it. I feel like I'm more interested in seeing it now that you've mentioned that they talk about other pieces of media, like the Temple of Doom, which is something that I remember loving as a kid and like looking back and it's just really problematic. Yeah, there's a few pieces of pop culture that they talk about. There's also this really interesting segment, I believe about halfway through, where he talks about he sort of makes the connection between Apu and and Temple Doom and all of these properties with minstrelry, and mm. he talks to Whoopi Goldberg about that because Whoopi Goldberg, which I didn't know, has like a giant collection of different like pieces of pop culture and different like artifacts of minstrelry, which I thought was really interesting. So yeah, it it is it is not exactly what I thought it was going to be either. Um, looking into it or watching it myself. It wasn't exactly what I was imagining going into it because I thought it was going to be very focused on Apu as a character, but he does a great job of connecting it with all these other things as well. So Sam, do you think that there is a problem with Apu? I think it's important to, I don't, I guess this is really the first time we've talked about the Simpsons on this podcast. Uh, And it's a huge piece of pop culture for me. It's probably one of the defining pieces of pop culture. I am Bart Simpson's age if he actually aged naturally. The show premiered in 1989. Bart was always is perpetually a 10-year-old. That's how old I was uh, when the first Simpsons episode aired. I'm also basically the same age as Harry Potter, so that's also deeply, deeply problematic. You know, there's clearly a problem, a a big problem, with The Simpsons. You know, they, they make very broad stereotypes, and those things haven't particularly aged well. As Kondabalu says, you don't have to throw out the entire series. It's okay to acknowledge the things that were wrong. And Tessa mentions the Whoopi Goldberg segment. And and I think she said something very concisely and clearly. She said, you know, it's hard to get mad at people who act out of ignorance. When you don't know, you don't know. And and he kind of raises his eyebrows when she says that. And he's she's like, yeah, I, I really just don't think, I think people are just, ignorant they don't know and and i think right now i think where we are in 2021 and i think we've been here for a little while people know now there's there's no you can't really use ignorance as an excuse anymore and so kondabalu talks with one of the previous writers of the simpsons and he is still really trying hard to display that ignorance and it just doesn't come off well It took until 2020, February of 2020. So this documentary comes out in 2017. In February 2020, Hank Azaria says he will no longer voice Apu. So it took three years. 
And Kondabolu is not the first person to to talk about this. He was not, when he was making this documentary, the issue had already been raised with Hank Azaria. There's a Huffington Post article that he references in the documentary that references both his work and what the general problem with Apu is. But they've gotten there because of this documentary, perhaps. Uh, a few months later, last June, the producers of The Simpsons said all voices, all non-white characters that are voiced by white people will no longer be voiced by those people. So that includes Hank Azaria also voices Carl Carlson, the, uh, the black police officer, and Harry Shearer also voices uh, Julius Hibbert, the uh, pediatrician, family doctor. And so, you know, they're hiring other people to voice those voices, I believe. So, yeah, there's, there's a problem. And all you have to do, and this gets pointed out in the documentary, all you have to do, acknowledge the problem, fix it, and that's it. It's remarkably simple. I think that's, that's, that, and that probably extends to a lot of problems we have with, uh, with, with race and ethnocentrism today. All you have to do, nobody's asking you to do anything. Well, some people are, but most people are asking you just acknowledge the problem and don't do it anymore. It doesn't seem difficult. But yeah, there's a problem. Hopefully it's better and we can just concentrate on the main problem with The Simpsons, which is just not very good anymore. <laughs> so if there's no longer a problem with the poos, should people watch this documentary? It's a good documentary. And as I just said, people seem to have a real issue with this, this concept of acknowledge the problem, fix it, and then it's not a problem anymore. This documentary is a really good exercise in listening to people who have a genuine grievance about you know, this, this kind of issue who are just saying, it's, here's the solution. If you can get that easily packaged in 42 minutes in a very... I think non-offensive way. Why not? But you don't even have to read anything. You just watch TV. Come on. That's my favorite way to learn. <laughs> <laughs> just watch TV. Just watch an episode. <laughs> yeah, I, I also really admired the way in which the people who were most affected by this got to talk about how they were affected by it. Like this idea of it doesn't actually matter what the impetus for this character is this is how this character has been used to hurt us like it's very like intervention like which i appreciate so i i forgot to mention the reason why we watched this the reason that we watched it is tessa's been bothering me for years to watch the voice acting documentary i know that voice which is a documentary from a few years back that john dimaggio uh who voices bender on futurama which is also created by Matt Groening, the creator of The Simpsons, he, he wanted to put a spotlight on voice acting. And during that documentary, lo and behold, they talk about not just Hank Azaria doing non-white voices, but also John DiMaggio doing non-white voices, doing voices of, of black men. And you even have black voice, actor, voice actors you know, talking about how good he does that voice. And it's just deeply uncomfortable because we know a couple of years later, this documentary came out. So I said, well, let's just watch that then and kind of see what the response is. So that was, that was a really interesting experience. And even looking at how the problem has surfaced, been addressed, and in many, many ways has been fixed all in the space of less than a decade, which just goes to show you, if people want to fix a thing, they can't. Well, and it sparked all of these like other people that had been voicing characters of color, handing the roles over to other people. Um, oh, gosh, what's her name? Big Mouth. Kristen Bell did something in one Is of those shows. Yes. That was Central Park. I think. Yeah, I don't yeah, watch either Bell. of those shows, but I remember her being in the news. Jenny Slate also voiced a character in Big Mouth, um, a, a black character, and she turned that character over to a black actress. So you can also talk about, I think there's room to also talk about commercialization with this type of thing, like how white actors are getting paid basically to do these roles that could have gone to people of color. This documentary doesn't really get into that as much because it's more about like the cultural impact of a poo. I'd be interested to see a documentary that actually talks about like who gets paid for these jobs 
Yeah, and I guess to take it one step backward, we're still we've started watching season three of Phineas and Ferb, and uh, I'm I'm trying to think uh, Puvan Meyer and Marsh, I believe are their names. The two creators, they're actually in that voice acting documentary, you know, talking about what they do. And then we watched an episode. I think it was the last episode we watched. Like the first half of it was like this prehistoric bit, which wasn't very good. And then the second one was setting all the characters in China, like in a in a uh, Middle Ages kind of situation. And it's deeply offensive. You know, it's just like you can't keep doing this stuff. But but again, that was even before the documentary existed um, about the voice acting. So years before the problem with Apu, which doesn't make it okay, but I bet that episode wouldn't be made today. And that's good. And hopefully Baljeet, if he existed, would be voiced by, you know, a a an actor of South Asian descent. Or it just wouldn't be a stereotypical character at all. It could be that character, but his his, you know, ancestry doesn't have to be a part of it. All right. We're really bad at transition, so I'm just going to move to the next segment. <laughs> but Elise, since we haven't had you on the show before, we like to ask new people questions about their list-making habits since this is a pop culture productivity show. So since this show is about getting things off your list, do you have an actual list? Are you team chaos? Do you use a letterbox? Do you have a Netflix queue? Like, what's your what's your system for keeping track of what you want to watch or read or play or whatever pop culture that you tend to engage with? So I do use Netflix queues and the queues on the other streaming apps, but I'm pretty much an agent of chaos, except for when it comes to reading. Um, I use Goodreads pretty religiously to... Just, you know, to keep my list of books. But yeah, the list is mostly in my head, which means that things get forgotten a lot. I do use Letterboxd for knowing what I've watched already, but my watch list on there probably doesn't have more than 30 movies. Um, and I use TV time for my TV watching. And there's probably about five to 10 shows on the list there that I haven't started yet. But it's mostly just in my head, and which means that most of it, it will never get done. <laughs> yeah, so you're definitely more Team Chaos, except for reading. Do you yeah. feel like there's a difference between reading and your other forms of media that cause you to like add more things to like a reading list than to a watch list? Yeah, I think that it's because I have a lot of friends that use that service also, that also use um, Goodreads. So it's very easy to see what everyone else is reading. So I think it's the fact that there's like a social media aspect to it. So if a friend likes a book, I'm like, okay, well, that sounds interesting to me. I'll add it. And then so I think that's that like, that's the reason when which I feel like is true with Letterboxd also. But I don't feel that way about, you know, Netflix cues and stuff like that. It's not they don't show like, what are your friends watching? It's not real unless somebody else is watching it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so eh, chaos. So would you say that your what's your ratio of like reading things to watching things then? Because we usually have people who don't do a lot of reading on the podcast, so I'm very mm. like curious as to what your balance is. So it's been a little bit different during uh, the pandemic. Um, last year, I read seventy books. And this year I've only read 18, so I feel like that has changed, but I also feel like I'm busier this year than I was last year. I started podcasting, so there's not as much time for... I get, I get like, tired when I'm reading more, so I'm not reading as much as I us usually do, but this year I binged pretty much all 12 seasons of Murder, She Wrote, and I have seen 15 seasons of Grey's Anatomy. I'm trying to get caught up. And so watching television or streaming TV shows is my like number one lately. Um, last year and this year I did try to, I am trying to watch more movies than I have in the past. But um, I think reading is taking a backseat when it used to be the thing I did the most. 
Well, yeah, because you're like tackling these super long, <laughs> complex shows like Grey's Anatomy and Murder She Wrote. I mean, that make, yes. that would make sense. I mean, you're also rewatching Deep Space Nine for your podcast, oh, yes. <laughs> Podwraiths, as well, which is not a short show. I mean, it's not as long as those other ones, but but also I'm very um, that require for me the way I process is I watch every episode twice so it does take longer than just watching a tv show you know you know I have to watch it everything I watch it once to get like the plot and then I watch it a second time with my taking notes and everything like that so yeah a lot of there's been a lot of Star Trek in the last year I feel like we we do a lot of headcanon in in not only in this show but but in this in this house and so all I can imagine is that Angela Lansbury's character from Gaslight, you know, as she as she gets older, you know, that that it's that same character who's now Jessica Fletcher, you know, novelist who solves mysteries. And so I think the truth of murder she wrote is that over the course of how many seasons she is gaslit into believing that that many crimes can happen in this small town and there's not something like really wrong happening. <laughs> I mean, I don't... is the end of that show that the town is built on a hellmouth? Like, but <laughs> is that like the punchline of Murder She Wrote? I've never seen Murder She Wrote. So. Oh, well, one of the fun things about Murder She Wrote, and I have to admit I haven't seen Gaslight, but um one of the fun things about Murder She Wrote is it she goes away a lot because of her book tours and such. So it's not it's not always in Cabot Cove, although I do find those episodes to be the biggest treats. And in season eight, which I think was the best season uh, besides the first season of Murder She Wrote, um, she they had her become like a professor at Manhattan University, which I assume was like an NYU. Uh, probably couldn't say that. So she actually moves to an apartment in New York City for like the second half of the series. So she goes to Cabot Cove like less and less. So I feel like crime in Manhattan is probably a little bit more realistic. <laughs> but um it's they Yeah, do that makes a lot up. more sense. <laughs> but it's it's really great. I've seen a fair amount of episodes uh because my my mom watched it. Maybe my grandmother watched it too. I I, I really think more than one person watched that show. So yeah, I've my seen mom also. Begrudgingly. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, it reminds me of um so uh Charlene Harris's first series before she started writing the the vampires. She wrote this um character. Her name is Aurora T. Garden. <laughs> oh, my mom watches those shows. Right. So she's like this four foot, ten inch tall librarian and in this small town and it's like okay how many murders can happen in this town like you can't this this okay all right you know <laughs> how many times have can you, you be suspected of doing it because <laughs> have you seen that series um i think it's on the hallmark channel so they do aurora tea garden movies and each one's like about 90 minutes my mom watches it and it stars candace cameron <laughs> No, that that can't. No, that can't be. That can't be true. Actually, it can be. It probably is. I think Candace it's on Cameron like... Bure. Yeah, sorry, I I left she married her the hockey dude. Last name out. Um. Yeah. So she. So not I to be confused on, like... with her brother. <laughs> I think it's on like the Hallmark Mysteries channel or something. I don't know. My parents get a lot. That, of that seems right. Random it's... channels. <laughs> I didn't know Quite that a was a Charlene Harris. Yeah, I, I didn't realize it was the same. I've read all of the True Blood novels, so that is interesting to me. And like the show, they went downhill. <laughs> yeah. Then there's another one, uh, the Shakespeare uh, series, which is has nothing to do with Shakespeare. That's a character's name. <laughs> oh, I don't know that one. And then she Sli- does the misleading. yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a nice little cozy murder mystery that has that kind of romancey vibe. That sounds up my alley. I said romance, so I gave you the mic. I have nothing to say. Oh, about that. okay. I I thought you were like saying something specific. I was like, I don't know what you're handing no. off to me for. <laughs> uh, I I'm just sitting here going like, how are there not vampires in these other like? Because I've I've also big fan of True Blood, so like I. Like all I can think of is at least with like uh what's the what's the town there in Bon Temps? Is that the name of the Bon Tom, yeah. Bon Tom. 
They, uh, oh, I just pictured. I le- at least. I was saying, I just pictured Jason in his sexy bon ton t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, at least with, at least in that town and at least in, like, other towns like Riverdale or something, you're like, okay, like, something supernatural is happening here. Like, I understand, like. Or, like, this, Vampire this probably, Diaries. like, attracts bad people. Yeah. Like, this just attracts bad people and that's why this all happens in a small town. But, like. Cozy murder mysteries, I'm just like, I don't understand. Well, the the really interesting thing about all these series is that the whole the whole deal here is that you have people like Charlene Harris who wants to write cozy mysteries, right? Murder mysteries with a little romance, little little borderline softcore stuff going on here, but it's not gonna sell in and of itself. So you add the supernatural vampire element and then boom, famous. Um <laughs> you well, I mean it's not the only example You're not because wrong. You're not well because you've got the Dresden files right True. he he wants to write sword and sorcery stuff but the only way he could sell something to a publisher was putting a magician in the middle of Chicago you know and That's and I'm not I'm not saying that I don't know like Laurel uh, Laurel K Hamilton I don't know if she meant to write urban fantasy or if she did it as a way to make money the way those other two authors did. But that's definitely a big part of that genre is I want to write this, but I have to do this to make it sell. That happens a lot. I was saying, I hope the thought behind Murder, She Wrote was just, we want her to wear cute outfits and that's what the part that sells. Because <laughs> so, so what you're telling me is, is that there's nothing borderline softcore in Murder, She Wrote. No, um, <laughs> there are. Angela, uh, Jessica <laughs> Fletcher does have uh, many potential suitors, but she stays single the whole time. She knows what's up, I think. She's definitely She's a more witch. cottage core than cottage core than soft core. Yeah, she's just a widow, and she doesn't have children, so she's pretty much she she just rules. She's living the life. Yeah, she has like a million family members and like nieces and nephews that randomly and she, like her one nephew shows up every once in a while. He's a mess. It's fun. She's like, I can't handle more people in my life. Like that's this yeah. is my limit. Yeah, no, I understand that. I understand that. Okay, so again, like making a weird transition genre wise. Now that we've talked about romance and cozy cozy mysteries, let's talk about someone who wrote none of those things. <laughs> Shirley Jackson. So, uh, what did you watch this week, Elise? Yes, I watched the 2020 movie Shirley, directed by Josephine Decker and screenplay written by Sarah Gubbins. Um, it's actually based on a novel of the same name by Susan Scarf Merrill. I have not read that book. Elizabeth Moss stars as, Shir- as Shirley Jackson, and uh, Michael Stolberg, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, is plays her husband, Stanley Hyman. Jesse Young is Rose Nez- Nemzer, and Logan Lerman is Fred Nemzer. So basically, this movie is like a portion of Shirley's life while she was writing her 1951 novel, Hangs a Man, which I had not heard of. Um... It's about the disappearance of a college student, Paula Jean Weldon, or it's based on the disappearance of that college student. That Paula is a real person that disappeared from Bennington College, but this is like a fictionalized version. So basically, um, Fred and Rose just got married and they're moving in with Shirley and Stanley for a bit to until they get on their feet. So Stanley's a professor at Bennington College and Fred is coming to work with him. Or for him, rather. Gotcha. So why was this film on your backlog? I had started reading The Haunting of Hill House after the show came out, but I never watched the show because I'm a baby. And I read about half of it. And (laughs) (laughs) I liked the book, but I don't know why I haven't finished it. It's really short. It's like nine chapters. I should finish it. But um, basically, I watched this because I like... Elizabeth Moss as an actor. I find her to be really compelling. And it took me a really long time to watch it because my co-host Matt on on my podcast also loves Elizabeth Moss. And we got this movie on Hulu and they don't have Hulu in Canada where he lives. So I was like, 
oh, I won't watch this until Matt can watch it. And then Matt watched it and I probably watched it six months later. So that's kind of, it was like solidarity at first, but then like it just it, kept Is it even getting Hulu delayed. cheating if one person doesn't have Hulu? <laughs> probably also he wouldn't have cared if I watched it before him, even if it was considered that. <laughs> So, uh, one of the things I know about you and Matt is that you're both Mad Men fans, aficionados. Is that where you got into Elizabeth Moss? Yes. Um, I did see her in, um, she's also in the West Wing, but I probably wasn't, didn't know who she was back then. But yeah, I'm obsessed with her character in Mad Men, um, Peggy Olsen. I keep forgetting that she's in the West Wing every so often. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah. She and, she and Dooley I mean, Hill ought to do something together. I know. They were really cute, I thought. But yeah, so Mad Men is a favorite. And actually, Matt has a podcast about Mad Men, which I've been on a few times. Um, it rules. I want to ask you this question, but oh, yes. I haven't figured it out yet. I, I want to <laughs> say on a scale of not great, Bob. And then I can't figure out what the other end of the scale is. So amusingly, that's actually that's actually the name of their podcast. <laughs> nice. It's called Not Great Bob Question Mark. <laughs> so is Shirley not great, Bob? Shirley is pretty great, Bob. I mean, I don't know that any of the people in Shirley are great, but the movie was great. <laughs> so what did you think of it overall? Um, I really liked it. Um, it wasn't a a typical, it wasn't a movie style that I would typically watch. Um, mostly because it was very dreamy. Um, throughout the movie, Shirley is writing her book, and she kind of uses the character Rose as a stand-in for Paula in her mind when she's. So when she's planning out her novel, like you, the Rose is like the person in that she's envisioning. So it's a very dreamy like movie where it's hard to tell what's actually happening versus what's happening in people's minds, which I really like. Um, the movie was also pretty hot and like it was a little queer, which I wasn't expecting. Um, all of the performances were amazing. The characters were all very manipulative, but I found it really compelling. Like, I was just wanting to see what everyone was doing next. Elizabeth's, Elizabeth Moss's performance was very unnerving. Um, it kind of reminded me of, I don't know if you've seen Her Smell, which is a movie she did a couple years ago. That performance was amazing, and so was this one. You could never really tell what Shirley was thinking. Like, her actions were very out there a lot of the time and I just enjoyed that I didn't always know what was going on. Um, her husband was extremely creepy and I found myself actively stressed whenever Michael Solberg was on screen but I <laughs> didn't but like it was supposed to be that way so it wasn't like it was like affecting me I think the way the movie creator the director intended. Um, there were some funny Indiana Jones vibes when he was teaching from the perspective of all the, like, young girls, all the young women in his class were, like, giggling at everything he said. And so I felt like it was interesting how he had this, like, outward persona. And then when he was, when they were home, he just, like, was very, I don't know, he made me very uncomfortable. I would say that the character of Rose is the main focus of the movie and often a stand-in well as I said a stand-in for Paula during Shirley's processing of her book but um Odessa Young's performance was really good and she does an excellent job of being kind of the audience surrogate like she you know the movie starts when they're going to live with Shirley and Stanley and the way that they show Rose it's like how you're seeing all of this for the first time. So I, th I thought she did a really good job with that. I really also liked the camera work. I'm, I don't know like technical terms and stuff, but there was really good framing and a lot of close-ups that really made things more tense, which I, which I really liked. I really liked it. There were times where I didn't know character motivations, but I didn't mind at all. So I always thought uh, when I, when you mentioned that you were going to do this and when I've 
seen this in other contexts before that this was more of a straight up biopic. So I is does it lean more towards that or is it more horror? Because it almost sounds like maybe they were trying to blend what she wrote with her life as well. I don't know that much about Shirley Jackson beyond what she wrote. So I guess that's right. I think <laughs> I think that there's a lot of um I'm not a big watcher of horror, but I do feel that this there were times where I wasn't like scared, but I was like very like what's on the edge of my seat, like what's gonna happen. Like I was a very tense movie. But it definitely like in the end I think it was over the course of a year about. But like when you start the movie, I didn't realize I thought it was gonna be like a few weeks and it, it the whole movie was probably about a year or so and um yeah it just it definitely played with genres a lot like it, I wouldn't have said that I wouldn't say that it was just like a straight up biopic or anything like that well and it's interesting I haven't seen her smell but I have seen Elizabeth Moss Moss's excellent performance in both The Invisible Man which was very good and in her supporting role in Us, which she also did a really great job in that film as well. So it almost seems like she's leaning more towards these like more horror, horror-y roles over the last few years. Yeah, I would. I haven't seen those movies mostly because I don't really watch that genre, but her smell is definitely, um, it's not horror, but the first two thirds of her smell are very intense and it was almost like not the same type of movie, but how I felt while watching 1917, where you're just like not breathing because it's so, I mean, she's mostly just on a drug bender for the whole beginning of that movie. But yeah, so I think she is drawn to these kind of roles where she just gets to, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it, but she just gets to be a little out there. Well, and I guess Handmaid's Tale also kind of dabbles with horror quite a bit. I haven't seen that show either, mainly because I don't feel like being masochistic, but... That's that's the same reason I haven't watched it. Yeah, from what I've seen, though, it also definitely dabbles in the more horror genre. So I, I just find that interesting as a career turn, because, yeah, I mean, I first encountered her in Mad Men. I didn't know she was in West Wing until you both mentioned it just now. So it is interesting to see how her career has sort of moved in this like completely unexpected direction do you recommend this uh to anyone and who would you recommend it to um i definitely i would recommend it to anyone who who likes her stories or her books um i would not i wouldn't be sure let me rephrase that i don't know if someone who needs to know exactly what happened and what they just watched would like it like the ending is very um unclear you can kind of take away from it what you want. Um, I remember I watched it and someone was like, oh, how did, what did you think of the ending? Or how did you think it ended? And I, it like didn't occur to me actually that someone, I took it a certain way and that someone would take it a different way, which so, but I can see it now. I probably re- will rewatch this movie. But yeah, if you're the type of person that is like, I need to know exactly what I just watched. I don't know that this would be a movie for you. So if you're looking for a straight up biopic, Maybe skip Shirley. <laughs> yeah, I would say. <laughs> but also, there any like other- I was... Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just talking to my mom a little bit about the movie before we recorded, and I was like, you wouldn't like this. <laughs> it's pretty much just how I, <laughs> how I phrased it. <laughs> and that's fair. I feel like everyone has that like list of movies of, like, my mom would not like this. Like, this is not a mom movie. First, we're recording this on Father's Day, and I feel like I also have a list of movies that are, like, not dad movies. Like, can't watch this with dad. I think my dad likes everything. It's pretty, it's pretty wild. Speaking of movies, your mom would not like. But my mom loves. (laughs) (laughs) What did you watch this week? So, I watched the film Good Morning Vietnam, which is a war dramedy film, which I didn't think that that was a genre of film until I watched this, a war dramedy film, war dramedy film, directed by Barry Levinson and starring Robin Williams and Forrest Whitaker. Of course, you know, we talked about how Disney has copyrighted, or I'm sorry, 
we talked about how Disney has trademarked Robin Williams at the top of the podcast. I believe the reason for that is he is the Norse god of cocaine. (laughs) 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 Um, And of course, Forrest Whitaker is Saw Gerrera. So that's that's very problematic. You know, those are two IPs that are very important to Disney. I mean, what do you think Jeannie was doing inside that bottle this whole time? Yeah. I don't how do you think Sagarera became the gorilla fighter that he grew up to be? I mean, these things don't just happen. And so of course, both of these personalities were fired in the crucible of Vietnam. <laughs> So, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Having said all that, what in the world took you so long to watch this film? Okay, first of all, has our head cannon gone too far that Vietnam is like now the nexus point for all of these properties? I, I, I think I the question think so. deserves to be asked. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, honestly, like this was not a film. Like you said, my mom would not have liked this film. Um, these were not films that I grew up watching. I have watched several war films because I do come from a military family on both sides of my family. My both of my grandfathers were in the military. My dad was in the military. Like my uncles are in the military. It's all a thing. But they were very carefully like selected and curated. And I think that also comes from like a military perspective. Like Band of Brothers was like a big thing in our house. And uh The other thing, and so for me, it's just like war movies or dad movies. Like, they're just not something that I, like, necessarily am drawn to. And so I just didn't watch a lot of them until I was older just because I was not interested in in watching these things. The other reason, too, is that Vietnam as a war is just so politically charged. And I'm not always, like, ready to watch, like, certain takes on on Vietnam, especially, like, pro-military ones necessarily. And I've seen Apocalypse Now. Um, I saw The Five Bloods last year, which, again, deserved like to be nominated for an Oscar. And Delroy Lindo also deserved an Oscar for his performance. It is an amazing, amazing film. But that film has a very, very different take on the Vietnam War. Like It is doing something very specific that I hadn't seen in like other films before. So for me, like it's it, it was very hard for me to approach any film that was about Vietnam and like want to watch it like it's like handmaid's tale like why why do i i I agree that it's probably good but why would i want to watch it so that's kind of my reasoning beyond uh, about this again just lots of complex feelings like my grandfather was in vietnam so i know a lot of that history from that that particular perspective so it's it's just it's hard for me to watch this type of film so then two-part question what did you think of the film and how wrong were you I was like 50% wrong. Like, I'm not going to say I was totally wrong about this film, but I was like, I did enjoy it a lot more than I thought that I was going to. So this film just very, very, this film very, very briefly, I mean, it's very easy to explain. In 1965, so this film was released in 1987, so it is going back to 65, the beginning of the Vietnam conflict, as it's called at the beginning of the film. It is about uh, Airman Second Class Adrian Cronauer arriving in Saigon to work as a DJ uh, for the Armed Forces Radio Service, and he is joined by Private. There it is. Okay, Private Edward Garlic, who's played by Forrest Whitaker. Which that name is great, Garlic. Edward Montesquieu. Edward Garlic. Montesquieu Garlic, and so like. It's Robin Williams being Robin Williams. Like it is a very very funny film. Like most of his. Uh, most of his rants, most of his like bits on the on the armed forces radio are just improv. They're just Robin Williams doing Robin Williams stand up, basically, just through like a, a radio lens, and it's very funny. Like Robin Williams is a hilarious person. Like I have always liked watching the little bit I've seen of his stand up. I love watching his films. So it's definitely something that comes across really well in this. He won a Golden Globe for this particular performance, and I, and he deserves it. Like, it, it is quite a good film in that way. And I believe Forrest Whitaker won some awards, too. Not a Golden Globe, but other awards for his role in this as well. It's very funny. Like, he's very funny. I liked the war dramedy, like, aspect of it. I always think it's good when you can sort of take two subjects, one of which is really serious, and and sort of make them funny. I always find that to be 
better than watching something that's always straight up like solemn, especially if you're trying to say something about a war. <laughs> I think um, I think humor is a really good way of doing that. Not all the jokes land. I do think that that aspect of it works. I also learned in my research for this that this is based on a true story. Adrian Cronauer was a real person who was a DJ in Vietnam, and he actually never met Robin. Well, he met Robin Williams after the film was completed, but he never met him before because they were afraid that Robin Williams would start imitating him like unconsciously. So they wanted to like keep it like pretty separate. But I thought it was really funny. He actually, in the 70s, pitched an idea for a sitcom based on his experiences as a DJ in Saigon. But they weren't like ready for that because MASH was really popular and they didn't want to counter-program MASH. So I just think that that's really funny is that like he had this idea for this story for a long time. Um, and it wasn't until in the late 80s that they decided to actually make this film. Yeah, so Adrian Cronauer is is definitely a maverick in the military and of course is comparable in some ways with that other maverick from a military movie in the 80s. I am of course talking about Tom Cruise from Top Gun who plays a character whose call sign is Maverick. But really, we talked earlier in this podcast about the problem with Apu, Apu Nahasapima Pedalon on The Simpsons. Is there a similar problem here with how Vietnamese characters or culture is portrayed? So this is one of my worries going in, and I'm going to say yes and no, uh, because this movie isn't quite as Orientalist as I thought it was going to be. I It's not as bad as, like, say, Apocalypse Now or, like, another film that's, like, a straight-up war film that wants you to think that these people are evil. Like, this particular film does want to say something about like how this war is being fought against people who really didn't want us to be there. Um, most of them didn't want us to be there at all. And how the Americans were actually causing a lot of the problems instead of, uh, you know, fixing them. And I think that's interesting. But the problem with this film is it doesn't know how to say that because it is being told from the point of view of a military person. And it also has some really, really uncomfortable moments of fetishization of uh, Asian women, especially like there's this whole scene at the beginning where Robin Williams is like he's just landed in Saigon and he's like catcalling these like Asian women and calling them like dragon ladies. And it's just like really, really uncomfortable. And so I will say that 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 was really bad. But there are also some friendships that he makes with um, some of the Vietnamese people that really complicate his view of what's going on, because even though he like really cares about the, you know, the boys in the trenches and he's doing this work for them and he's like trying to give them like quality, funny entertainment to keep them going. He also makes friends uh, with like a local Vietnamese boy who, you know, tries to like kind of takes him under his wing and tries to explain, you know, like this is what's happening in, in, in Vietnam right now. This is how things work. He like defends him against, you know, other Americans who are pretty racist about, you know, what's going on with him. And so I this movie's trying to be nuanced. I think at the end of the day, it doesn't really know how to be, um, which I, I think is part of the problem. But it is a lot less offensive than I thought it was going to be going into it. So this movie is, what, almost 35 years old at this point? Should people continue to watch it or should they just be happy with, I don't know, what Robin Williams movie would you watch that, I mean, Dead Poet Society's kind of aged poorly. Should you just stick to a lat? Well, I mean, that's a problem. Hmm. Is this a, is this a good Robin Williams movie to watch all these years later? actually say yes i would say as long as you're going into it knowing that it's not perfect and knowing that there's going to be some things that make you deeply uncomfortable i think this is some of his best work balancing comedy and drama because he is very funny in it um there are these great conflicts because the the whole central conflict of the film is that his the person who runs the radio station doesn't want him to be there because they want to like play like easy listening and like, you know, like the oldies and like Perry Como and like, you know, like all of these and like be really chill and relaxed. And he like wants to be Robin Williams and like, you know, make crude jokes and swear and make fun of Richard Nixon and play the Beach Boys and Bob Dylan and, you know, like all the all this like rock music, you know, and it's very funny, like all of that stuff, all of the like anti 
you know, all, all of this sort of culture stuff that's going on in it is really interesting. The, the clashes that he has, especially with his immediate supervisor, who keeps insisting that he's funny, but he's not funny at all is really, really hilarious. Like, Forrest Whitaker is great. He nails this, like, really high-pitched laugh, which <laughs> just, like, cracks me up. Like, it's it's a really great... The camaraderie between the two of them, the back and forth, works really well. I would say this is one of Robin Williams' best performances, and I'm a little shocked that when I hear his best performances being ranked, I don't actually hear this one uh, listed very much. I mean, you hear about it, but I just... It's not one that people like return to a lot, but I think he does a pretty good job with it. Um, and they do show like, you know, some atrocities of war and he does have to like deal with the fact that like he is working, he is entertaining a group of people that are probably not on the right side of history on this one, which I think is a really interesting thing to say. Again, I don't know if they really pull it off, but if you're just, if you're a Robin Williams fan and somehow you haven't seen this movie and you want to see him be at like the height of his hilarity but also serious you know emotional gut punches this is a good movie for you just be aware going into it that it's not always gonna age appropriately have you seen it before okay i think i'm gonna watch it now that we've uh, discussed <laughs> that's actually it. why we so bring you guests both on to convince them to watch, watch. <laughs> no i haven't so. <laughs> we all pass things around on well the you list. both well, just added things to my list <laughs> yeah mission accomplished we got one thing off your list put one thing back on Wait, are we actually a pop culture productivity podcast or are we just like masochists? All right. So tune in next week. We have a special episode of Rank That List coming out next week. So where can everybody find us? Elise, where can people find you if they want to listen to you more or see you on social media? Yes, um, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Elise underscore Tendi. E-L-Y-S-E underscore T-E-N-D-I. And you can find um, my podcast, Pod Wraiths, a Deep Space Nine podcast, on Twitter and Instagram at Pod Wraiths, P-O-D-W-R-A-I-T-H-S. And you can m- find us on most podcatching uh, apps. Oh, I was actually going to ask you before, you have listeners that are using your podcast to cross D- DS9 off their list for the first time. Is that right? Uh, yes, actually. I have a couple um, close friends that are watching it the first time, which is wonderful. They've never seen Star Trek, probably, except for the JJ movies. Perfect. So you can, if you are looking to cross Deep Space Nine or any Star Trek off of your list, Pod Wraiths is a great episode to check out. All right, Sam, where can people find you? Find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Our theme song, Hot Shot, by Scott Holmes, can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.